Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. It's uh, sweet to see your names and faces, some uh, familiar faces, uh, many new names and faces. So uh, if we haven't met, as Ileana said, my name is Oren. Uh, I'm speaking to you from my home in El Cerrito, California, just about 45 minutes south of Spirit Rock uh, on the ancestral lands of the Ohlone people. And uh, I'm particularly happy to see uh, a few folks from the uh, Steadying Your Heart Brahma Vihara retreat that we just finished practicing at, uh, at Spirit Rock. So good to see you all again. Well, um, we'll start with a little meditation. We'll take a short break to stretch the legs, take care of your body. We'll come back. I'll offer some reflections on integrating our practice into our life. Um, and then leave a little time at the end for questions discussion. So happy to be here. Looking forward to practicing together this evening. So if you aren't already, go ahead and settle into a comfortable posture, sitting, standing, reclining. And maybe just to start by um, listening to the body. And just noticing what your body needs how it wants to move before coming into stillness. If you want to stretch it all or take a few deep breaths. Mm. There's so much intelligence in our bodies and so much of uh, the pace of our lives and the emphasis on screens disconnects us from the wisdom and the knowing in our body. And so a lot of the work we end up doing in certain phases of meditation practice is just trying to reconnect with the body, bring the mind and the body together. And this is supported, of course, by movement, stretching, breathing. So as you come into stillness, you can let your eyes close or just gaze down at the ground in front of you if that feels more comfortable. And starting by just doing nothing. So notice if you're immediately kind of rushing in to a certain technique or to accomplish something or to focus. And notice how it is to just Leave some space. You might think of it as um, like walking out of a building into the night. And all of a sudden you notice the sky is full of stars and it's still and it's quiet. And you're just kind of taking in where you are letting your senses wake up. So in that same way, as we turn our attention inwards, can we just start to take in, to receive the inner landscape just as it is? Noticing if your body feels awake or tired. And parts that feel contracted and tight or expanded and loose. 
Noticing any emotions or moods that are present, like the weather of your heart. Getting acquainted with how it is for you right now. And as you notice these various aspects of your experience, you might also notice the places where your body is touching the ground, your feet or knees on the floor, if you're sitting the chair or the cushion or mat beneath you. And see how it is to just attend to the sensations of contact there sense of steadiness. Just letting your whole body rest on the earth. Imagining that every cell could receive the support of this vast, stable ground beneath you. And how is it to begin to let that in? Something that supports you, something you can rest on. Does anything shift in your breathing, the muscles in your face or your shoulders, maybe even in your heart? So meditation includes kind of different vectors, different, different ways of being that we attend to. So one is a certain quality of slowing down. So this is why we might close the eyes or let the body become still just beginning to rein in some of the energy that habitually flows outward, downshifting inside. So slowing down, you might notice your body breathing, You might notice the uprightness of your spine, just the sense of being here. So we slow down. We also incline towards being aware. So this is this process 
of waking up to what's here right now, noticing how it is for you. And seeing if within this whole mixture of experiences, thoughts, sensations, emotions, and sounds around you, where you might rest your attention using an internal or external reference point or anchor, like the breath, your hands resting in your lap, or even the sounds around you. It could be just the contact with the ground, the sensations of pressure, warmth, steadiness. So we slow down, become aware, and we enter into relationship with what is, however it is for you right now. Connecting, relationship is a process Like a conversation, there's a give and take. So as we connect with whatever's happening, we also look deeply and sense what's needed. The heart feels contracted in fear or pain. We listen, what's needed here, some warmth, some space, maybe a break, attending to something else. It's a relationship. The heart feels peaceful, calm, still. You receive that, perhaps just enjoy savor, linger there. So just to be clear, just inviting you to rest your attention lightly somewhere in your experience that feels easeful. Sounds, the breath, the body.
and to notice what's happening. However it is for you, can you be in wise relationship with it? Listening for what's needed, responding appropriately inside. Rather than judging, blaming, trying to control or get away from what's happening. This is our practice. If you start to drift, you notice the mind has wandered. You begin to get caught up, tangled in something. As soon as you notice, most of the work is done already. In the sense that awareness is already returned. That moment of recognition is so important. Oh, struggling, daydreaming. We, we wake up out of the trance. It might be helpful to let your attention just gently return to an anchor, a reference point kind of regroup. Or you might see, is there the space to have a wise relationship with whatever is occurring in the heart, mind, or body? feel and sense it 
in a balanced way, allowing it to unfold right here, right now. Perhaps even to allow yourself to get curious and playful. What is this? This thought, this memory, this worry, this feeling, this mood, this familiar pattern. Who is this? What happens if I just step back and feel this? without needing to act on it, make it go away, figure it out, solve it.
So the simplest form of practice is just resting with an anchor, gathering our attention, allowing things to settle. Then there's opening to the rest of our experience, noticing what is and coming into relationship with it. How is it for me right now? What is this experience of being human? As we open to the way things are, there's one part of the practice that's just about bearing witness, just observing, feeling, sensing things as they are. And there's another part it's about responding, attending to what's needed. When we're sleepy, we brighten the mind. We sit up straighter, we might breathe more deeply, even open the eyes or stand up. We respond, we adjust. If the heart's caught in anger or hatred, we feel the burn of that. We recognize the harm to our own heart. And so we might respond appropriately, see what's needed, some soothing, perhaps understanding the message, some deep value of ours, asking to be heard. When there's grief, we bring tenderness. When there's fear, we bring courage and steadiness. So the practice is an unfolding conversation, a process of being and responding, of listening, and then adjusting. Sometimes we just listen and observe when there's enough balance and clarity in the heart-mind. Other times we need to actively add certain ingredients, patience, kindness, compassion, energy. So you need to trust your own wisdom as we sit to know what's needed right now. So just rest with an anchor and keep it simple. to observe, to just know what's unfolding as it arises. 
and perhaps at certain times to respond, to call forth the beautiful aspects of our heart. Uh, we'll continue sitting quietly like this together for a little bit longer.
Letting your eyes open, bringing some movement into the body. Looking around the space where you are. Thank you so much for joining me. So let's take um, about a five minute break. Stretch your legs, get some water, do what you need. And uh, we'll come back just at the top of the hour uh, for a Dhamma talk. All right, see you soon. So making your way back to our shared space here. I'd like to offer some reflections tonight on bringing our formal meditation practice into our life. And maybe just to make some connections first to the meditation that we just did. I think that oftentimes the meditation instructions we hear stop after pay attention to the breath. And we can kind of end up just sort of coming back to the breath again and again and again. Um, And this creates a kind of distortion, both in the meditation practice and also in how it translates into our life. It sets up a certain kind of expectation that somehow meditation is just about controlling our mind and pinning it on an object and somehow disconnecting from the rest of our life. When in fact, that process of settling the mind is just sort of the first phase of creating enough resources, stability, and strength inside to then open to everything else. So if we get past that first stage of uh, that first set of instructions and actually hear more instructions, which is to open to the rest of our experience and notice what's happening, the next obstacle that we face in the meditation instructions is um, this instruction to observe, which is a profound instruction and a difficult process to uh, abide by with integrity because we want to mess with experience all of the time. We want to make it better. We want to fix it. uh, We want to feel good. We don't want to feel this. So to just observe takes a lot of doing. But again, here too, if this is the only thing we do, um, we can end up kind of spinning right? If you're observing something, but you're not balanced, then we just kind of go down. Um, Or if we're observing, say, some pleasant fantasy about the future, but we're actually kind of getting involved in it a little bit, we end up feeding it. So this is where the the third instruction that I was offering earlier uh, in the meditation is important, which is to respond, right? So we're, we're in relationship with what's happening, And sometimes when there's enough balance in the mind, we're just observing and learning from the unfolding of experience. And the stronger the mindfulness and concentration, the more deeply we can observe, the more powerfully we can understand the nature of experience and what it is to be human. But when those conditions aren't present, 
we might need to respond to what's happening appropriately to bring in some of these other factors like kindness and patience and compassion and courage and energy in order to rebalance. And so this instruction is really essential for our life when we think about the connection between our practice and the rest of our life. In our lives, we're not just observing, we're responding all the time to what's happening. And the question is, how, how are we doing that, right? Are we reacting automatically, habitually, or are we able to make clear, effective responses that are coming from a place of wisdom and love inside? So how we practice in the meditation will affect how it's showing up in our life. The meditation practice is only one aspect of the path that the Buddha taught. And the path as a whole is holistic. It's kind of redundant. The path is holistic. It's meant to transform our, our lives from the inside out. So if you look at the Noble Eightfold Path, this kind of summary of the Buddha's teachings, one way of understanding it is as a certain kind of set of instructions for living with specific pointers and recommendations on everything from how to train and cultivate the heart-mind to our work, our speech, our relationships, and our very understanding of our place in the world. If our meditation practice or our kind of contemplative and spiritual practice in general doesn't inform our lives, if it's only something that we do on retreat or at a certain time of day in a certain place, then what's its real value? What's its, what's its relevance? It's just another nice experience. So this feels even more important to me today with so much change happening in our world so rapidly and so many overwhelming challenges and crises unfolding around the world in our communities. How do we really bridge the gap between what's happening in our contemplative practice in the rest of our life. So this is what I want to explore together tonight. And the first thing I want to acknowledge and just suggest as a starting point is that part of being human means that there's often a gap. There's a gap between what we sense is possible, say for ourselves individually or for our society, and reality. There's a gap between our vision and where we are, between our values sometimes and what we're actually able to do, how we act in certain situations. So we each, I think, can see this in different ways in our lives. One of the first times I noticed it uh, was many years ago and I started my practice and I was living at the Insight Meditation Society and I noticed that the very meaningful experiences I was having in meditation practice of feeling peaceful or calm or sending metta to all beings, feeling, you know, very connected to a value of love and kindness were not accessible even in the smallest of disagreements. I was worried, I often tell this story when I teach communication because it's one of the things that inspired me to learn more about communication practice. I would notice that when I was working in the kitchen, 
if I had a disagreement with one of the fellow cooks, it was very difficult to stay patient, to be loving and understanding, and not just try to assert my will and say I was right and get into arguments. And those same deep values of the meditation were even less accessible when I would talk to family members and often get into arguments there. So we see it in our relationships. Um, those of you who practice with me or maybe you're on my email list know that I had a child a year ago. So I'm a new parent. And this too has been a tremendously humbling experience to see the gap, right? Between my aspirations <laughs> And the reality, you know, particularly in those first six months when my wife and I were so underslept and under-resourced to see how quickly the patience runs out, how easy it is to get into arguments and spats. Sometimes in our lives, it takes uh, a major loss or significant change to be able to see the gap between what we hold most dear and true and how we are showing up. When my father passed away uh, very suddenly earlier this year, and one of the great lessons of his passing for me has been coming to terms with the ways that I was withholding love from him. Because he wasn't taking care of himself and it was so painful for me, because it was so hard to be close and in relationship with him and see him suffering. And I had kind of worked with that for years, practicing equanimity and forgiveness, taking space even at a certain point many years ago, um, and had definitely made progress and found more acceptance and equanimity. And yet there was this piece of, of, recoiling a little bit inside that I wasn't fully aware of until he was gone and then and then felt the grief and the remorse of that of that gap between what was true in my heart and what I was actually able to offer and realize in the relationship so what do we do with that gap what do we do with that gap in our world? You know, when we see hunger, poverty, climate refugees, war, the ongoing effects of racism or structural violence, how do we relate to the pain of that gap between our values, our vision, and reality? Uh, a good friend and a colleague and former mentor of mine, Mickey Kashtan, who's a nonviolent communication trainer, um, points out that oftentimes, if we are not conscious and careful, we'll try to fill that gap with unskillful things. So we'll, we'll ignore or avoid it. Uh, we'll try to fill it with distraction, with stimulation, with addiction, with depression, with apathy. With blame, we blame ourselves, we blame others. With busyness, eventually with burnout, because we, we don't have the capacity, perhaps, to tolerate or engage with the pain of that gap. 
So is this making sense so far, what I'm sharing? Okay, okay. So this is the first, um, you know, suggestion that there's often this gap between our heart and the world. So the next thing is, how do we relate? So rather than trying to fill or avoid or numb that gap in unskillful ways, how can we begin to relate to that with more awareness and skill? So one of the most powerful resources I think we have for this is compassion, is tenderness for the pain of that gap. To begin to accept that this is how it is right now. Not some absolute statement, but this is the truth of my experience, is that this is what I this is what I long for and this is what is, and that distance hurts. And sometimes just to acknowledge that, to have some acceptance about it, can create a little bit more space and to bring in a quality of tenderness for ourselves. And if we can't access it internally, then to imagine someone else bringing it in. An elder, a mentor, a grandparent, a spiritual or religious figure. As we start to do that, as we start to kind of honor the pain with compassion, something else can begin to emerge. We can sense the healthy longing underneath that gap. We can honor the beauty of what it is that we are longing for. The Buddha talked about a a kind of healthy grief. That's the longing for awakening, for enlightenment, for our hearts to be free and whole. And I, I love that he talked about it that way as a certain kind of a kind of pain, but a healthy one because it it motivates us to bridge the gap. There's a beautiful line from from a Rumi translation that says, "The pain is the cure for the pain." It's like we do so much to try to avoid the pain, to not feel it. And in doing so, we rob ourselves of the very medicine that we need to begin to heal it. Because the reason it hurts is because we care. You see that? If we didn't care, it wouldn't register. So as we bring compassion or self-compassion, this quality of tenderness, we can begin to identify what is so beautiful in that longing. So this has the potential to connect us with aspiration, which is one of the sort of foundational qualities uh, on the path to awakening and in any movement for social transformation and change, the sense of where are we headed? What is the goal? This is a kind of orienting principle for our life or for our communities. So to really ask oneself, what is our most noble aspiration? What what is it that really matters to us? And this can be something great or small. This could be simply, I want to treat everyone I meet 
with kindness and respect. You know, for me to, to parent with attention and love and patience in every moment as much as possible. You know, one of the things that's so remarkable for me about um, our son, who's just, just turned one recently, is like every experience and every interaction he's learning. So how am I showing up? Everything is learning for him. So what is our aspiration? Aspiration can orient us in a world that can feel so overwhelming. Now, what's my North Star? And then when we feel overwhelmed or confused or lost, we can remember that aspiration. This is what I'm about right now. This is what I'm aiming towards right now. We come back to that deep longing inside. And it's just the clarity about that that, that can help us begin to relate to that gap in a different way. One of the things that was hardest for me in the first few months of our son's life was seeing um, when my patience would run out, uh, which all, would happen often in the middle of the night, you know, up every hour or so, right, with a, our son crying, needing a diaper, needing milk. And um, there were times when if I was unable to soothe him, and I was tired, I would run out of patience, and I would get so angry inside because I felt so helpless. It was incredibly humbling and a little bit scary to see that anger arising in relation to this newborn that's so vulnerable and utterly dependent. And it wasn't until I really articulated for myself, I want to practice patience, that I was able to start to bridge the gap, that I was able to start to touch into a, a deeper well of strength and resources when the anger would arise, when I was feeling impatient, to remember that deep vow of, I want to practice patience. So there's this gap. How do we relate to it? Can we bring tenderness? Can we honor the pain? Can we connect with the longing, the beautiful, wholesome longing underneath the pain and begin to connect with our aspiration? So this then brings us to um, really the heart of the matter which is how do we bridge the gap? What are, what are our tools? What are our strategies to start to narrow that distance little by little? Just, uh, just a note um, kind of technically here, just a reminder that um, I'm not looking at the chat. So I see this little bubble coming up on my screen as some folks are commenting and, um, please save your comments or questions for the end. And um, Ileana, 
will uh, will help to mediate the conversation there. So one of the essential things I think is to remember the core framework of the Buddha's teachings, which is that everything arises due to causes and conditions. When those conditions change, what's arise, what has arisen changes. This is the this is the heart of understanding in the Four Noble Truths, which is a kind of statement about the causes of suffering and the conditions that lead to the end of suffering. The Four Noble Truths and the whole path to awakening work because of this fundamental sort of law of the universe that everything is affecting everything else. And when certain conditions come together, there's a certain outcome, right? So if you have uh, wood and oxygen and enough heat, you get fire, Fire only happens when those conditions come together. If those conditions change, there's no oxygen, it gets wet, the fire stops. I think you know what you think you get what I'm saying here. So the question then is, what are the conditions that can support us to bridge the gap? What are the conditions that help us to integrate holistically our deep values into our life? What conditions help us? remember our intentions? What are the conditions that support us to, say, bear with discomfort, to step outside of our habits and do things differently? So one of the things that I learned uh, during my time as a kind of novice monastic training for a few years was how much external support this path takes. The dominant paradigm in the West is so hyper-individualistic, and then we come to this practice which seems very individualistic. It's like, I'm going to sit with my eyes closed, and I'm going to meditate, right? Um, And yet it's so hard to tame the mind, to understand this craziness that's happening inside. When you look at the monastic form that the Buddha set up, or even the lay communities that supported the monastics, there's a lot of structure. There are a lot of forms to hold the community and remind those on the path of their aspiration, of their commitments. So the Buddha emphasizes again and again throughout the teachings the company we keep. Who are we spending time with? And how are they influencing our mind? So when we think about the conditions that will support us to live the life we want to live, to create the world we want to create for future generations, I think one of the great tragedies of our times is this kind of split between the um, the world of healing and spirituality in the world of social change. And the social change movements tend to look outwards only, and the healing and spirituality movements tend to look inwards only when the reality is we need both. 
we need to be looking at the internal conditions of transformation and the external conditions for transformation and attending to both. So the Noble Eightfold Path provides a fairly robust template for beginning to examine this and really consider, okay, well, what are some of those conditions? So I'm not going to go through it kind of, you know, piece by piece, but I'll touch on different aspects of it just as a way of structuring some of the reflections I have. So the path begins in the sort of chronological order of it with our view. And the view that our practice is our life, the sense of non-separation. It's not just about what we do on the cushion or when we go on a retreat or when we're reading or studying, but it's about all of the way, all of how we're living. So one way to begin to bridge that gap is to just recollect this view or even to, to nourish it if it's not there. What if your meditation, what if your contemplative life were all of your life rather than just something you do at a certain time of day? How does that change the way you go grocery shopping? How does it change the way you talk to the person on the other end of the phone when you're in a corporate phone maze? How does it change the way you talk to the teller when you're frustrated about how long you've had to wait in line? How does it change your choices about how much news you take in and when and how and where you get your media from? A view is very very powerful. It's how we look at ourselves in the world, and the way we look at something determines how we relate to it. So bringing forward this view that caring for my heart realizing my potential, awakening, however you want to talk about it, is about everything in my life. That starts to open up a lot more opportunities for practice. So this is one, one tool we have, dissolving the sense of separation between our practice and our life. Another is simplifying the teachings and the practice down to one question. Am I suffering right now? Maybe two questions. Where am I holding on? Where am I resisting and controlling? Am I suffering? What's the cause? Where am I, where am I not in right relationship? with the unfolding of life. So this opens up a whole, a whole new terrain for practice in our lives and gives us many more opportunities to start to bridge the gap. So this is about cultivating wisdom our view, the kinds of questions we ask, and the relationship we have with what uh, with what's unfolding, the different intentions we bring forward in our hearts. So just like that story I told about those early months of parenting, bringing forward an intention of patience, bringing forward an intention of compassion to myself. These are ways of 
um, bringing wisdom into our lives. So the next section of the Eightfold Path is about our conduct in the world. And what I've always found so fascinating and powerful about this part of the Buddha's teachings is that he starts with speech. It's before any other form of action, and it's before the teachings on right livelihood, how we earn a living and work in the world. He starts with pay attention to your speech. Many of you who are familiar with my teaching or have sat retreats with me know that this is an area that I've spent a lot of time um, exploring and that I teach a lot on is, is integrating contemplative practice into communication. I wrote a book on it. I have online classes on it um, because it's such a powerful arena for transformation and for nourishment in our lives. Our relationships determine to a large degree our quality of life, and it's our communication that determines the quality of our relationships. So if we're looking to bridge the gap in our lives, communication is one of the most powerful levers we have. We're communicating all the time, even when we're not talking to others, there's the internal dialogue, how we're treating ourselves, so making even one shift in your communication has an outsized effect on the rest of your life. I talked about my dad earlier. Um, we grew so close over the years, which is why it hurts so much at the end to see that I was withholding something. And so much of that, why we were able to grow close was because of the training I did in communication and being able to listen and connect and express myself. A very good friend of mine, um, known each other since we were 10 years old, we met in fifth grade, and we're still, we're still tight, um, was interviewing for a job uh, just the other day. And uh, he and I have been in touch about the job interview process and, uh, you know, bouncing ideas off me and, and so forth. And he asked me, he sent me a, a text message just this past week when I was at Spirit Rock teaching the Brahma Vihara retreat and said, what are your top three tips for communication? <laughs> um, and I said, you mean for the for your job interviews? And he said, yes. And we had some conversation about, um, you know, communication in the workplace and, and things like this. So, um I found it kind of funny because I my whole communication training is structured around like these three steps. So I was like, oh, I, I know I know this one. Um, but I like the way uh, I express it to him. And so I wanted to offer just a very brief teaching on communication tonight as um, one way of starting to bridge the gap in our relationships. So the first is to lead with presence. Those of you who have read my book or taken my classes, this is, you know, that's familiar. It's the understanding that to communicate effectively, we need to be here first. Because communication is about understanding each other. Even if we're just trying to get something done, we need to be able to understand each other. We can't understand anything if we're not present. So show up. 
as much as possible. Learn how to keep showing up. Stay connected to your body and keep being available for connection. This is one way to practice in communication. Second, listen fully and check if you've understood. So, so much of the time in conversation when someone else is speaking, we're not actually listening. We're planning what we're going to say next. We're refuting what they're saying or our mind's just wandering somewhere. So when you're listening, really listen. This is a beautiful way to express our meditation practice in our lives. Of course, when there's a lot going on, we might need to track like what's being said. That's fine. You know, track what you need to so you can follow what's happening. But really trust that the more fully you listen, the better you're going to be able to connect and respond. Instead of trying to plan what's going to happen next. As soon as you start planning, you're not in the moment. And then you lose connection with the other person and with your own creativity and wisdom. Because now you're trying to control the future by planning. As you listen, if you're not sure about something, check it out. Ask, you know, are you saying this? Check if you've understood. Okay, that's the second tip. Listen fully, check if you've understood if you need to. The third tip is when you're speaking, less is often more. So say enough to convey what you want to convey clearly and let go of what's extra. Your words have more weight when they're fewer words with more sincerity. So take any one of these tips, take two or three of them to lead with presence, to really show up. When you're listening, just listen. Try to understand and check if you've understood if you're not sure. When you're speaking, less is more. Let your words carry their own weight. This can start to transform your conversations. It can start to transform your relationships. It can even transform your relationship with yourself if you practice it wholeheartedly. So this is a very powerful way to start to bridge the gap, is by attending to our connection with others. I've already mentioned choosing wisely who we spend time with because our hearts and minds are so impressionable. Um, some of you know I have uh, a new book coming out in the fall um, that's kind of adjacent to the topic I'm talking about tonight. It's, it's well, maybe not. It's, it's about how do we translate our practice into our life um, as a whole and really looking at that also in relation to social change. And um, one of the things that I was able to learn a little bit about in research during writing the book um, was some of the uh, academic research that was done on the civil rights movement and particularly um, the uh, Freedom Summer. And I think it was 1964 when uh, many students from the North uh, went down South to help register black voters. And um, this one um, researcher, I'm, for, I'm forgetting his name right now. I want to say Daniel Hunter, but I, th I think I think it was someone else. Um, discovered was that 
what made the difference, why um, some people chose to take that really high risk of getting on a bus and going down south and really risking their lives to do this, was that they had been involved in other forms of activism that were much lower risk earlier and had developed strong ties with people in the community. It was through the relationships and the association with what's known as low-risk, low-cost activism that they made the choice to engage in high-risk, high-cost activism because of relationship and connection. So who we spend time with matters. It affects our choices. It affects our worldview. It also affects our opportunity to learn because we learn from one another. So one of the things that I sort of will be forever grateful for in my own life is the time I've been able to spend with teachers, meditation teachers, and what I've learned just by being around them. There are teachers all around us in our life. If we know how to see them, if we know how to listen to them, So another thing that um, I practice and value a lot is receiving feedback, giving feedback and receiving feedback, because it's one of the one of the ways we learn. You know, we can't see what we can't see, but other people can. And if we're lucky, they'll tell us. One of the analogies that uh, I like to use that I've heard from others didn't make this up in in teaching about feedback is it's like telling someone that they've got something you know between their teeth have you ever gone through the day and you know you get to the end of your day and finally someone tells you like uh you know you've got something there and no one told you all day so receiving feedback is kind of like that. It's like someone's telling you, like, you might want to take a look at this. I think others are experiencing you in this way, and I'm guessing it's not your intention. I'm guessing it's not how you want to show up. Can we receive that as a gift? That takes a lot of strength. We have to be really rooted in our own goodness. To trust our heart to be able to take something in non-defensively. And to know the difference, to know what's what's accurate and what's not ours, and to just let it be there. This is another um, really powerful tool that we have to bridge the gap, is to listen for our teachers in life. And sometimes that teacher is small child. Sometimes it's a friend, sometimes it's someone that you consider an enemy. But there's something to learn there if we're willing to receive it, if we're willing to be open to it. So we've talked a little bit about view, how we um, think about our life, seeing our whole life as our practice, invest, paying attention to where we're suffering. We've talked about um, relationships and communication and feedback as ways of bridging the gap. The last area of the Eightfold Path is the training in meditation. 
right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And this is based on the understanding that we can shape the heart, that we can train the mind, that our inner life is not fixed, but actually can can grow. And that every day is an opportunity to do that. We're making conscious choices every day, or we're making choices every day. When we make them consciously, we can start to align what we're doing and how we're living more with our values. So we can learn to cultivate more gratitude. We can learn to live with more joy. We can learn to live with more patience. Every, every quality that we want to cultivate, every, um, you know, trait in the heart that we recognize as a valuable inner resource it takes time to develop. It takes intention, practice, and a certain amount of creativity. So knowing one's own strengths, knowing what we're good at, and knowing where we need to improve, what we want to get better at, knowing our own shortcomings, you know, the qualities that uh, we recognize are not becoming, that we would like to stop feeding, and which uh, harmful qualities we don't engage in, either because we've already overcome them or they're just not a problem, they're just not there for us. This is, this is the known as the four great efforts in Buddhism. So the strengths that you already have, make sure you keep nourishing them. The ones that you haven't cultivated, bring them online. The shortcomings that are there, learn how to disengage, turn the volume down. The ones that you're not engaged with, like if you don't gamble, don't start. Right? If you're not addicted, don't start. It's like the things that you're not doing that are harmful, great. Keep Keep going with that. The more we do this, the more we make choices every day to develop and deepen our strengths, the more inner resources we have to meet the changes and the challenges of our lives and our world. And that helps us to start bridging that gap. As soon as we start to engage any of these methods, and this list, of course, is not not exhaustive. There are many other ways we can um, practice and bridge that gap, but as soon as we start to acknowledge it and make an effort, we can sense that that we're at least moving in the right direction. And that brings energy. That brings faith. It brings confidence. It brings uh, joy. Because we know, we know we're going in the right direction and we keep walking toward the goal. The last piece I want to share, um, specifically around the choices we make, is how are we responding? So coming back full circle now to the meditation. So how are we responding? There's too much need in the world for us to do everything, and there's too much need in the world for us to do nothing. Know what's yours to do. 
for each of us, know what's ours to do. And then to act, to respond. Whatever it is within your purview, there's so much that we can't affect, but there's also so much that we can. So to just listen and be clear about that and then trust the process, trust the process of moving in the right direction without needing to know when or where or how we'll get there. Thank you so much for your kind attention. It's been a real pleasure to share and spend the time together. As we say in the Dharma, take what's useful and the rest, you just leave it aside. So we have a little time now. Um, if you have questions or comments, um, you can have a little discussion. And um, the way we'll do this is Ileana is going to kind of be MC. Oh, thank you, Ileana, for reminding me. Okay, yeah, before you leave. <laughs> um yeah, two little announcements here. So um, if uh, if you find benefit in how I share the Dharma, how I teach, I would love to uh, practice together again. Um, I have um, my eight-week online communication class is starting in two weeks. Um, and Ileana kindly put the link there in the chat to my website. Um, and then my new book is also coming out just before Thanksgiving. It's called Your Heart Was Made for This contemplative practices to meet a world in crisis with courage, integrity, and love. Um, and it uh, offers practices to develop 26 powerful qualities um, to live a more meaningful life and engage effectively with the challenges in our world. So both of the links are there in the chat if you want to check either of those out. And uh, for the book, I put together some... Um, uh, some gifts when you pre-order the book, some guided meditations and a free download and stuff like that. So questions, um, you can either raise your hand virtually and uh, then we'll call on you, bring you on with the mic, or um, you could uh, send your message in the chat to Ileana and then she'll read it aloud and I can respond uh, respond there. So happy to hear what's alive for you and uh, what, if anything, I can share more about or clarify from the talk. Stephen? Yes. Um, my question is, um, I tend to worry about the small stuff and rejection is a big one. I'm always kind of like scanning the horizon where I'm going to get my next rejection. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very tiresome. Mm. And it's very painful. It's, it's, it creates a lot of havoc in my life. A lot of, I don't know about havoc, but any, you have any words about that? Words of uh -huh. wisdom? Because it's just yeah. how my mind works. My work, my mind works looking for a rejection. Mm. Well, thank rejection. you. For yeah, thank you for sharing that question. It's uh, quite tender to hear. I can understand how that would be tiring. And um, yeah, sounds even a little bit lonely, maybe, to just have that as a kind of default scanning 
I appreciate your willingness to be vulnerable with all of us and just share that. So, you know, just to kind of reference some of the things I was sharing on the talk. Um, so, so there's the gap, right? There's the habit of scanning for rejection. And then there's what it sounds like you'd like, which is something else, maybe to feel more free or less anxious about that, maybe to feel more love and connection, right? So there's that gap there. So first, I think just to kind of make space in your in your own heart for like the discomfort and the pain of that, to just recognize and be tender with yourself for how hard that is if you're not already. That would be the first thing I would say is to just recognize like, ouch, you know, this is hard. This is hard. And as you may, as you do that to see like this part that is scanning for rejection, what if it were trying to help? Right. It's like probably doing that because at some point it was really useful (laughs) to be on the lookout for rejection. And so is there something in that that could be an ally, even though it's not helping anymore? So rather than what, what why I'm saying this is when we have a pattern we're trying to shift, the tendency sometimes can get into a can be to get into a war with ourselves. We're trying to like make this go away or fix it or change it. And so a different approach is to actually embrace it and love it. Shinzen Young used to say, love it to death. Like, oh, this part that's so maybe frightened, it's just trying to help me, just trying to keep me safe. And maybe this is nothing new to you, this first part that I'm sharing. So I'm just going to pause here and see how is this sounding to you so far, and then I'll, I'll share another idea also. Well, I think that um, that it's I've never gotten to the point where I, I can just love it. It's yeah, more like solve it, t- but just right. to love so it, a, let it go away. Sure. That's a tall order yeah, to love it. I don't think I've been very successful at that at all yeah yeah and so rather than creating a a project out of it to just what would it be like to have a friendly attitude towards it this is one instruction you could work with to just have a friendly attitude towards it oh there's that there's that defense there's that like guard watching to make sure this is one part i think of how you can work with it The other part is to develop an alternative. So to start to feel a sense of being loved and accepted and belonging inside. The more you develop that, the more this fear of rejection is actually not even going to matter because there's so much trust inside about your place and your belonging. So there are meditations that you can do to develop that. And then there's also relationships in your life, building relationships where you feel 
some closeness, some connection, some friendliness. On the meditation side, I would encourage you to do metta practice, metta for yourself, loving kindness, gratitude practice, and to reflect on your connection with nature, the fact that our bodies are part of the earth, we're not separate. And to think about cultivating a sense of, of love and um, warmth towards yourself so that you start to feel more of a sense of um, yeah, belonging inside that, that no one can threaten. So that even if someone rejects you, which does happen, the response is like, oh, how sad for them that they don't get to connect. What a pity, what a shame that they're choosing not to be in relationship. That's okay, that's their choice. It doesn't harm me because I'm okay, just as I am. This is the direction I think, the other direction to go in. So I would love to talk more, but I wanna have time for connecting with others. So I just offer that and um, invite you to explore it and see if there's anything there that uh, would be useful, Stephen. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. It looks like Chris has a hand up unless you have a chat question, Ileana. There is uh, one question in the chat. Great. <clears throat> it says, um, I like the idea of being present and listening for communication, but what if the person with whom you need to talk will not make themselves available? Mm, yeah. So painful, isn't it? This is um, not an uncommon predicament for us as human beings. And it's sad that that's the case, and yet it's true. This is one of the most common questions I get in my communication classes. So without knowing more of the context, I'll just offer a few general thoughts. Um, of course, we can't control other people's behavior. So it doesn't matter if we're the most skilled communicator in the world, if we have all of the empathy and love and compassion available to a Buddha, we can't control other people's choices. What we can do is make ourselves available. We can take responsibility for our unskillful actions and leave an open door. So, and then we can heal internally um, as much as we uh, can in, in relation to the other person, regardless of whether or not they ever choose to reconnect or be in touch. So, um, what I mean by each of these is one, sometimes it's helpful to just send a message to someone and just say, hey, I know you don't want to talk or I know you're not ready. I want you to know that I'm here. I'm available to listen without judgment. And I would like to understand if and when you're ready, let me know. And then the hard part is you need to let it be. You need to let it go and wait to give them that time, that space. So this is that invitation. 
Um, a second thing that can be powerful or helpful, particularly if there's been some kind of injury or disconnect or pain, is to take responsibility for the things that we've done or said. And without an agreement to have the conversation, you probably don't want to go into too much depth um, because that too is kind of asking for something, right? It's asking for them to listen, sending them a really long letter or email or text message. It's like, I'm not talking to you. Why are you sending me all of this? So being really brief, you know, can, can be um, more useful there to just say, I want you to know I've been reflecting on the things I did, the things I said, the way I showed up, and I have a lot of regret. And I, I see some of the things that I could have done differently. And if there's a time when it's right, I would love to share that with you to try to make amends if and when you're ready. Something like that, right? So taking responsibility. Sometimes when we take responsibility for our piece, it invites the other person to take responsibility for theirs. We stick our neck out in that way. The last piece is um, the place where we actually have the most freedom and agency, which is what's in our own heart. So doing the deep work of forgiving ourselves for the mistakes that we've made, for the ways we've caused harm, you know, feeling the remorse, and to the degree that um, that it's available to you, entertaining the possibility of working to forgive the other person, which doesn't mean condoning their actions. It doesn't mean that we forget. It means that we release our heart from resentment and suffering, that we're no longer living in the past. It says, I accept what happened in all of its complexity and I'm ready to move forward. Sometimes that's the best we can do, but it is a choice that we can make to move in that direction. So I hope that's helpful. Thanks for your question. Chris? Hello. Hey. Thank you very much for the lesson. It's very good. Um, something that resonated that you said, you said, um, there's a gap between what your heart wants and I think reality. Um, often. often. Often, yeah. Can you give me an example of perhaps uh, a student of yours that had to deal with something like that or you had to deal with it? Can you can you, can sure. you expand a little bit more? Absolutely, yeah. So I gave a few examples in the talk, right? Getting angry at my infant or you know, my relationship with my dad, but I can give some more examples. So um, I'm pre-diabetic. I'm a thin guy. I'm pre-diabetic. Go figure. Um, I still eat sugar sometimes. It's terrible for me. Why do I do that? Why, why don't I have more restraint? There's a gap. I know it's not good for me. I know it's not good for my health. And yet, like, I'll eat a piece of chocolate, you know, or I'll have a little bite of ice cream. I know, you know, so this is one example, very sort of ordinary, concrete example. Um, uh, a friend of mine is living on a budget and sometimes spends money on things that he doesn't need and later regrets it. There's a gap. Um is that enough to make it clear for you? Do you need more examples? Okay, so how, how do you tell him to deal with that situation? 
between what his heart wants and the reality. So there isn't a one size fits all, right? It really depends on the situation, on the person, on what they can hear, on what they need, on my relationship with them, whether or not it's even my place to say something, right? So the place that we have the most agency is over our own heart and our own choices. So what I'm what I was hoping to offer tonight, what I was trying to offer is some ways to start to engage with that gap, to acknowledge it, to open to the discomfort, the pain, like what comes up in that gap? Is it self-blame and judgment? You know, is it like, oh, I'm so terrible. Why do I? Is it anger? Is it, oh, I'll do what I want to? You can't tell. Like, wh- how do we re- how do we react to the gap? Are we able to just engage with a clear view and an open heart that says, oh, this is how it is right now? Okay, how does that feel for me? What do I need here? To begin to engage with it in a way that is non-reactive. That's the first step to start to... um, Someone's giving me advice about diabetes. Okay, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) um that's why i try not to look at the chat when i when i teach you know to see like what is what is our relationship there yeah that's helpful thank you okay thanks chris yeah yeah um yeah iliana uh i just want to check with you so we're we're, we're at nine o'clock it's past my bedtime um i can take maybe one or two more questions and i'm aware um, just for a little, oh, one hand just went down. Okay, are you sure about that? The person just put their hand down? Yeah. Um, are there any more chat questions, Ileana, or only those with raised hands? There was one more chat question. Okay, let's go ahead and hear that one. And Tiffy and Peter, don't you, you can stay here. You don't have to go away. <laughs> okay. The question reads, what are your thoughts on all events, circumstances, and things are ultimately harmonious? Is this Buddhist concept, sometimes called rewarding intelligence. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Uh, I haven't necessarily heard that as a Buddhist concept. um, And I'm not familiar with the phrase rewarding intelligence. The way I would understand that from a Buddhist perspective is that there are different levels to reality on the relative level. That's a false statement. You know, just look around at the world. There's definitely not harmony. There's war, there's violence, there's hunger. You know, this is blatantly false statement on the relative level. On the absolute level, I could understand that statement in the sense that everything is following a natural law. Everything is unfolding due to causes and conditions. All matter and energy in the universe are harmonious in that they're following the laws of causality and conditions. Everything's unfolding you know, due to those, those natural laws. In that sense, there's some harmony. That's how I would understand that. I don't know if that's helpful, but that's what I have to offer. Um, 
I'm wondering, Ileana, if we could hear from from Tiffany just for a little bit more variety of. Um, I don't want to make assumptions, but um, it's okay. Gender presentation. Yeah. Hi, Tiffany. Hello. Um, so thrilled. Thank you so much. Yeah. Lightning. Um, the, the, with the mentioning of gap, I, I kept mm-hmm. thinking of Victor Frankel and, you mm-hmm. know, gap. and in that, you know, we do have a choice. We do mm-hmm. have a choice and it's difficult for us sometimes to make the mindful choice, you know, mm-hmm. choice and so following. Yeah certain conditions is, is helpful in helping us make, you know, an appropriate choice. Um, yeah. And, um, so I, you know, and, and then I thought of another Victor Frankl quote, that's not as popular as, you know, some of them, but it's, uh, you know, we all have an opportunity to behave like a, a swine or a saint and it's in our decisions and not the conditions. Mm-hmm. And, um so I, I'm wondering if you have some insight, and I know we're short on time, but insight on, you know, how, you know, you can offer insight into helping us um, make an appropriate decision in that moment, in that mindful moment. Yeah. And fall on to just blaming it on conditions, right? Right, right. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, I don't well, know. That- I mean, I think that's the purpose of our practice, right? Is that's, we practice so that in that moment, it's more likely that we have the conditions to make a wiser choice. So all of our practice, you know, study, Dharma conversation, formal meditation, retreats, um, devotion, chanting, however you practice, um, is sowing the seeds of skillful qualities, mindfulness, kindness, wisdom, patience, balance, so that when that moment arises, the momentum of the skillful qualities is stronger and stronger so that the conditions are there to make a different choice. And, and for me, it's like how, and then what happens? So we make the skillful choice. Do we really um, appreciate it? Do we continue to, reinforce the knowing of what's happening and the benefit of that choice so that we keep moving in that direction. If we make an unwise choice, do we take the time to really reflect on it and learn from it and say, okay, what happened there? How am I going to do it differently next time? What do I need differently to do it? You know, so that, that we're, we're, you know, always learning from those choices. I hope that's helpful, Tiffy. Thank you. Okay. So maybe last last one, can we hear from Peter? Thank you. Can you hear me? 
Yeah, I can. Hi. Thank you. Um, I'll try and be brief and thank you. Thank you for this evening and thank you for going past your bedtime. This is something I've been um, struggling with in my meditation, which is pay attention to breath, get some space, pay attention to how I feel physically, to sounds, to sights. You know, really just to try and open up and, and be observant and not caught up in, you know, the sorts of thoughts we all have. Um, and, and then to become aware of uh thoughts emotions and to and and you started you talked about this um and then as those maybe an emotion that feels unhealthy or or whatever comes up and i i know that part of the practice is to try and make space for that to try and understand perhaps what's motivating it but then all of a sudden i'm meditating and thinking right and i i'm really struggle with like that just feels sort of out of whack if you okay will. yeah i think your question is about how to investigate without getting yes. lost in thinking Thank you. yeah Thank sure you. sure yeah it's a great question peter and um it's a skill that takes some practice um it's more of a kind of listening with interest than analysis. So the analogy that that I like to use for um, investigation, right? So there's some habit pattern, some thought, some emotion that comes up that you recognize as you want to understand more for any reason, okay? Um, so the first thing is to is to just check the motivation are you investigating because you want to go away that's actually aversion that's not investigation or are you genuinely interested genuinely wanting to understand that's the prerequisite then just observe listen what is this so the process is one of like asking a question and then just wait and feel and sense and see what happens. And if your mind drifts, then ask the question again. Why am I so angry about this? And then just listen to what comes. Images, sensations, thoughts, just, but just hold the space, the quiet space of listening. The analogy I give, I said I was going to give analogy, is like, so you see these plants behind me. If you were like, are those real plants? Or are they fake? How would you go about finding out? I mean, you could ask me. But if you were here, what would you do? You would approach the plant. You would look at it. You might touch it. Right? You would observe. You're not going to answer that question by thinking about it. The only way to know if the plants are real or not is to observe very carefully. You have to get close enough and gather enough data. And then at a certain point, it clicks. You're like, oh, yeah, they're real. So so it is with investigation. You're investigating anger. What is this about? You can think about it all day. I mean, you might get, you might get somewhere. But to just listen, to just approach it and study it and get to know it in the same way that you would Use all of your senses observing that plant until something clicked and your mind put it together. 
That's how I understand investigation. Thank you. That's that's super helpful. Really appreciate it. Okay. Well, friends, thank you so much for joining. It's been a pleasure to spend the evening together and um, to hear your questions and to share. Um, Hope to see you again, maybe at my online course or down the road at another event. I have a lot of a lot of events coming up um, related to the book. So uh, I'll be teaching online a lot. And um, thank you for being a part of Spirit Rock.